Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In today's episode, we've got the story of an extensive police action in the west end of Provincetown on Tuesday in response to a barricaded individual, as well as a scathing report from the State Department of Revenue regarding financial management in Wellfleet. Will David is here with his exclusive WOMR weekend weather outlook, and Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about the lessons of covid and Oz. Police officers in Provincetown's West End took a barricaded man into custody at around 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 28th, at his home after seven hours of trying to resolve the incident peacefully, according to a town notice. The man was taken to a hospital for a medical evaluation. Police from as far away as Bourne were called to an area on Commercial Street near the U.S. Coast Guard Station after receiving reports of an active barricade situation. The town posted a notice on its Facebook page and asked people to avoid the area. The town's updates did not mention any firearms or other reasons that the situation was dangerous, except to say that officers were trying to communicate with the individual and peacefully de-escalate the situation. By 12.45 p.m., the police had blocked off a stretch of Commercial Street, from Pleasant Street to Mechanic Street, as well as all the cross streets leading to that area from Bradford Street. Police vehicles from Yarmouth, Mashpee, Bourne, Barnstable, Truro, Wellfleet, and Provincetown were all parked around the area. According to recordings of a police scanner published by Hyannis News, the man had repeatedly expressed suicidal ideation and was in possession of a weapon. The scanner recording also indicated that another person was present in the house and had been threatened with the weapon. Nearly seven hours after it began, the situation was resolved peacefully when the man was taken into custody and brought to a hospital for evaluation. An announcement released by the town around 7.30 p.m. thanked the agencies involved in the incident for their assistance in de-escalating the situation and bringing about a peaceful resolution. The town also thanked residents for their patience and understanding throughout the day. The Provincetown Planning Board has issued a special permit to developer Christine Barker for the hotel, restaurant, bar, and condominium project she plans to build on the harborfront property where the dilapidated old reliable fish house now stands. The project has received both zoning and planning board approvals in the past, but those decisions were tied up by appeals in land court. This time, Barker proposed to use provisions in the town's inclusionary zoning bylaw to allow for the nearly 60-foot height of her proposed mixed-use development. As required under the bylaw, Barker committed to building or buying a one-bedroom unit of affordable or community housing at an off-site location that will be similar in square footage to the four market-rate condominiums that are part of the harbor proposal. Although the planning board gave its approval, some special permits from the zoning board remain and are still being appealed. 
An appeal of this latest special permit from the planning board could be added to those already filed in land court. Marine Specialties owner Patrick Patrick, whose property abuts the proposed project, argued that the inclusionary bylaw provision allowing for a special permit to exceed height was for residential development projects only. In response, Barker's attorney quoted sections of the inclusionary bylaw that state that a development that results in a net increase of two or more dwelling units qualifies. Therefore, under the terms of the bylaw, this is considered a residential development. Both the planning and zoning boards approved Barker's initial proposal, but Patrick and two other abutters appealed those decisions in land court. Patrick is the only remaining appellant of those earlier decisions. In December, the land court allowed the case to be put on hold while Barker requested the special permit to exceed the town's maximum height, based on provisions in the inclusionary bylaw adopted last April. In her special permit request, Barker said she would build or buy a one-bedroom affordable or workforce housing unit off-site, so the project would have four market-rate units on-site and a single affordable unit off-site. All other components of the project remain unchanged from the plan approved in 2021. Plans also include reconstructing the old pier to a length of 264 feet, which now awaits approval by the State Department of Environmental Protection. The town of Harwich has filled the vacant position of town treasurer and tax collector. Betty Clark McClay, the current assistant treasurer collector in the town of Marion, is expected to start work as early as next week. Town Administrator Joseph Powers told the Board of Selectmen last week that he was thrilled to announce the hiring. Clark McClay has worked in both the public and private sectors, having served municipal banking clients while working for Unibank for more than five years. According to Powers, Harwich uses Unibank for online payments and other services, so the town is getting someone with extensive experience with some of the most important applications that the treasurer will use. Harwich has faced the departure and retirement of a number of officials over the past couple of years, particularly in the finance division. Clark McClay will take the place of treasurer-collector Amy Bullock, a 25-year veteran who retired at the end of December. The assistant treasurer-collector, the assessing director, and the assistant town accountant all retired within the last year, and the finance director leaves next week, to take the treasurer-collector's role in Yarmouth. The town has had difficulty filling many of the positions, at a time when the finance division is typically busy preparing the budget for the upcoming year. The select board voted unanimously to endorse Clark McClay for the position. And earlier this month, the Provincetown School Committee voted unanimously to appoint the district's interim superintendent, Jerry Goyette, the next superintendent of Provincetown Schools International Baccalaureate, or IB, World School. The vote was based on the recommendations of the superintendent search committee and Mr. Goyette's performance during his time as interim superintendent. Goyette has worked in education for 35 years, beginning his career as a science and math teacher. He previously served as the middle school principal in Sutton, Massachusetts, before becoming Provincetown IB Schools principal in 2021. 
Goyette has served as Provincetown School's interim superintendent since July 2021. Provincetown IB Schools educates lifelong learners who are committed to growing a peaceful world through social justice and international mindedness. Students' intercultural understanding is built through academic study, acts of integrity, and learning how people are locally, nationally, and internationally interdependent. More information on Provincetown Schools' IB World School can be found at provincetownschools.com. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A financial management review by the State Department of Revenue blames a lack of definitive leadership in Wellfleet for the town's years of distress, inconsistent financial planning, and loss of community confidence. The review calls for sweeping institutional changes to impose basic financial procedures and foster accountability from top policymakers on down. The scathing review contained 20 recommendations for policy and management change. The report says that Wellfleet has labored to provide steady leadership, financial stability, proper procedures, and an environment that fosters communication and collaboration. A major cause of problems has been staff turnover. In the past 10 years, Wellfleet has had six town administrators, six assistant town administrators, nine town accountants, and six treasurers. The list of deficiencies includes nonconformance with generally accepted accounting practices, breach of internal controls in the Treasurer's Office, and notice from the Securities and Exchange Commission for violating continuing disclosure requirements related to the issuing of municipal bonds. The DOR cited the town's failure to submit a year-end statement of revenues, expenditures, and balance sheet information that is due annually by the end of November. Town Administrator Richard Waldo reported on Tuesday that that report has now been submitted. The town's mismanaged finances first came to light in early 2021 and resulted in the presentation of an unbalanced budget at that year's annual town meeting, which had been delayed until late June. The town administrator and town accountant had both resigned on April 23rd. Among the DOR's recommendations is that the town procure new auditing services. The work of Powers and Sullivan, the town's auditors for the last 27 years, has been questioned because no management letter accompanied the fiscal 2019 audit, even though serious deficiencies and errors had been found. The report notes that financial experts recommend that municipalities change external auditing firms every five to eight years. Wellfleet has been unable, however, to find another firm willing to bid on a contract to carry out the town's audit. It put out a request for proposals, and nobody but Powers and Sullivan responded. Among the DOR's recommendations is that the town be prepared to set its tax rate and send out property tax bills on time. The October 1st date has been missed in seven of the last ten years, the report states, 
reflecting bad policy and poor practice for a community that needs to build credibility in the way it manages municipal finances. Other recommendations include hiring a finance director and combining the offices of treasurer and tax collector. The review calls for the town to seek professional training for its financial staff, to implement standard financial reporting methods, and to institute financial management team meetings. These changes, the report concludes, will require all involved, from top policymakers on down, to display a sense of diligence and responsibility for changing the narrative and restoring the community's financial management reputation. There was some good news. Wellfleet was recently upgraded to AAA status by Standard & Poor's, and local receipts came in higher than anticipated. Waldo, who was hired in 2022, said the town was already heading in the direction recommended by the report. At a special town meeting on Monday, Brewster residents will vote on three petition articles that, if passed, would effectively transfer control and ownership of the 32-acre Wing Island from the Select Board to the Conservation Commission and block any further expenditures, designs, or plans for a raised boardwalk intended to increase the area's accessibility. Members of the town's leadership team suggested the idea of a raised boardwalk in response to a state mandate to make the town's conservation properties more accessible. Wing Island was the town's first open space acquisition in 1961, and while the adjacent marshes and Cedar Ridge Preserve east of Drummer Boy Park are protected by conservation restrictions, there currently is none in place for Wing Island. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection has said that the planks currently in place through the marshes cannot be permitted as they are now. Town Manager Peter Lombardi told the Select Board about a state directive to make the town's conservation areas more accessible to elders, persons with disabilities, and EMT personnel who need to rescue visitors stranded by currents and tides. One of three articles up for consideration on Monday would rescind residents' previous town meeting approval of the Drummer Boy Park Management Plan, which references the potential Wing Island Boardwalk project. The boardwalk would potentially connect Drummer Boy Park with Wing Island. Currently, the only access to Wing Island is from the Museum of Natural History. Doors at Stony Brook Elementary School open at 5 p.m. on Monday, and the special town meeting is set to start at 6. Nauset Youth Alliance will provide free child care for children ages 5 to 14 from 5.30 to 8.30 in the Stony Brook School Art Room during the meeting. To take advantage of that service, you can call 508-896-7900 before 4 p.m. today. The three-article warrant is available on the town's website. Orleans' first recreational marijuana dispensary could open its doors this summer. Seaside Joint Ventures plans to open a dispensary on Lots Hollow Road, and the Zoning Board of Appeals issued a special permit to the project without conditions. Partner Tim McNamara said a building permit has also been secured from the town for the project. 
McNamara said the company will be working with the state's Cannabis Control Commission toward getting a final permit, but that he anticipates the business will be open in midsummer. Meanwhile, the zoning board on February 15th voted in favor of granting a special permit to Ember Gardens, which plans to open a dispensary at 41 Route 6A near Nauset Marine. The company's CEO, Shane Hyde, told the zoning board that Ember Gardens will next pull demolition and other permits from the town. Once those permits are reviewed by the state, the company hopes to be granted a final license from the Cannabis Control Commission. With the final license, Hyde said the company hopes to break ground and demolish the existing building on the property in April. Construction is expected to take six to seven months, putting the business on track for an early 2024 opening. Truro Department of Public Works Director Jared Cabral will explain two major town projects at a forum on March 8th, the restoration of Mill Pond and a proposed new DPW facility. The forum will serve to hear citizen viewpoints and share a presentation by engineering consultants. The damaged Mill Pond Road culvert is currently restricting tidal flow from Pamet Harbor. Consultants working with the Woods Hole Group have developed four possible solutions. In a memo to the select board, Cabral wrote that his recommended option is to permanently close the road and install a 95-foot breach with a 10-foot-wide inner channel. The option is controversial. Cynthia Conroy and 15 others have submitted a petition for the town meeting warrant, urging the town to send a non-binding resolution to the select board that any repair or replacement of the Mill Pond Road culvert will not permanently close or abandon Mill Pond Road to vehicular traffic. Cabral will also discuss an updated analysis for the new DPW facility, which is now projected to cost nearly $30 million, a 60% increase from the 2019 analysis. The study suggests three possible sites for the facility, one on Route 6, a second on Town Hall Road, and a final and least costly option at the 70-acre Walsh property. Consultants who worked on each project will be at the forum. The March 8th meeting will take place at 5 p.m. in a hybrid format at the Truro Community Center on Standish Way or virtually by a link available at the Town of Truro website. Provincetown's Health Department has announced a new initiative that will run for the next 16 weeks at the Provincetown Library. From 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on Wednesdays from March 8th until June 21st, a free clinic will offer wellness support, nutrition information, and an Ask a Nurse program. The program will include blood pressure and blood glucose screenings and information about hypertension and diabetes. The Ask a Nurse program is a collaboration with the Barnstable County Public Nurse Program and allows residents to seek free medical information from a professional. The nutrition education is in collaboration with the Cape Cod Cooperative Extension and will complement the Crop Swap free produce program that already operates at the library. The Crop Swap is similar to the premise of the swap shop at the town's transfer station. People can drop off fresh, uncut fruits and vegetables, and people can take away what they'd like.
The new effort is part of a partnership among the four Outer Cape Health Departments, and anyone, not just residents of the Outer Cape towns, may attend the wellness clinic. The four towns have also filed a $500,000 grant request for American Rescue Plan Act funds from Barnstable County for regionalized public health work. That county grant program, which will disperse $5 million to organizations across Cape Cod, will announce awards in April. And for Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. The active weather pattern continues as the last in a series of storms impacts the Northeast tonight and Saturday. The parent storm will head toward the Eastern Great Lakes as a secondary storm develops off the South Coast. Now the track and strength of this second area of low pressure will determine the amount of rain, sleet, and wet snow across the Outer Cape. In addition, high pressure to our north in tandem with this storm will cause a tightening of the pressure gradient with increasing east to northeast winds. Some of the wind gusts could exceed 55 miles per hour, leading to possible power outages. Now these onshore winds combined with an approaching full moon could also result in areas of coastal flooding, especially over east coast facing beaches. Thankfully, the storm will move in and out fairly quickly, with Sunday looking like the better of the two weekend days. By early next week, a developing block over Greenland will cause the departing storm to stall over the North Atlantic, and that's going to set us up with a cool and brisk northwest blow. A weak area of low pressure will race eastward by Tuesday, and with enough cold air in place could bring the Outer Cape a bit more snow. The rest of the week looks quiet, but there are now signs of yet another possible storm next weekend. Elsewhere across the nation, the big story is the powerful record-breaking storm moving across the southern tier of the country. This storm has brought 12 feet of snow to the west along with high winds and heavy rains, and now a severe weather outbreak including tornadoes, damaging winds, and large hail to the plains and mid-south. Flash flooding is still occurring across parts of Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee as the area of severe weather moves from the southeastern U.S. this afternoon and finally out to sea over the weekend. But it's this same storm that will bring significant snow, rain, and wind to parts of the Mid-Atlantic and much of the southern and central New England area tonight and Saturday. And finally, have you ever wondered why hitting the slopes in March can cause a pretty serious sunburn? Well, March 1st is referred to as the beginning of meteorological spring for a reason. March is the month where we gain the most amount of daylight over the entire year. The Outer Cape receives almost 90 minutes more daylight in just 31 days. This rapid increase in daylight directly corresponds to the sun angle and the amount of UV radiation emitted by the sun. The early March sun has the same strength as the mid-October sun. And if that doesn't surprise you, how about this? The late March sun is similar to the early September sun. And we all know that in early September, it's still summer. So the late March sun is 
a summer sun. I've made this point dozens of times over the years. The sun's UV radiation and consequent tanning and burning potential has nothing to do with the temperature. So whether you're hitting the slopes or taking a stroll on the beach, it's the time of year to begin taking the sun much more seriously. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. A wind advisory has been posted for Saturday morning and afternoon. This afternoon becoming partly sunny, highs around 41. Tonight, windy with snow, sleet, and rain developing. The snow and sleet could accumulate to a coating maybe up to an inch in some areas, near steady temperatures around 35. Saturday, very windy with morning rain and wet snow changing to all rain. East winds gusting to 55 miles per hour with highs in the mid-40s. Sunday, partly sunny and breezy, highs around 42. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. It was a little over three years ago that the Evening News ran a report from someplace called Wuhan in China, where officials were attempting to contain some strange new virus. A few weeks later, the virus started appearing in Europe. Do you remember? Then, on a cruise ship outside San Francisco, and soon enough, I think, a UMass Boston student recently returned from China started developing symptoms. Then, if I remember correctly, it hit some executives at a conference at the Long Wharf Marriott, and every night from then on, another case was reported in the Berkshires, in Sudbury, and it couldn't happen here, could it? A 60-year-old man in Sandwich. Finally, and I think it was exactly three years ago next week, Governor Baker declared a state of emergency, and then Everything was ordered to close. The details are a little hazy, as is my recollection of that entire time. It was as if we were entering an unknown universe, an Oz-like world of danger, strange characters, and if not witches and wizards, then alternately frightening and hopeful pronouncements every single day. Luckily, I was spared the heartbreak that so many people endured, but we all encountered so much. The canceled travel, the closed schools, the empty supermarket shelves, not to mention the nightly death reports. And now that we're in the midst of the third anniversary of it all, I've been asking myself, what in the world did I learn? And I'll ask you as well, not that COVID is over, but now that we have more tools at our disposal, tests, vaccines, boosters, treatment options, now that we can see family again, now that many mandatory mask mandates have been lifted, what did you take away from it all? How did you change? What might you do differently going forward? And mainly, what was the overriding lesson?
I'm one of those people who feels the need to look back and make sense of things, especially catastrophes. But when I think back on the whole pandemic nightmare, I mostly come up with disjointed images, celebrating Thanksgiving on our screen porch as the rain poured in sideways and drenched all the food, standing in a line of 50 people outside Shaw's Market, discovering that a man I knew from town government had died overnight in Cape Cod Hospital. There were times when I thought I saw silver linings for sure, connections being cemented in our fragmented society. But the early acts of kindness, like caravans of cars blasting their horns as they drove by lonely neighbors' houses, were short-lived and gave way to stories of corporations using fear of shortages to jack up prices or frontline workers being assaulted because they asked customers to please wear a mask. And all those early hopes for the environment, that nature would recover while humanity stayed home, well, they only gave way to more traffic, more pollution, and worsening climate change as the lockdowns eased and people rushed to get back to normal. So what was the takeaway from all those many months of social distancing, vaccination anxiety, Zoom schooling, passenger meltdowns, pandemic politics, health worker fatigue, canceled events, and human separation? The answer has to be different for each of us, precisely because we went through it all on our own or in our own tiny bubbles. But I think the pandemic forced all of us to live life more closely to its essence, to forgo our favorite distractions, to grapple with and make the best of and seek joy in the things that were close at hand, because for a long time we had no other choice. If there was an overriding lesson for me, it was a simple one, to treasure what was already there, to appreciate the things I already had, my friends, my work, my family, my garden, and even my rickety old house. For months, going into years, I didn't have any other choices. So what did I learn from three years of pandemic Oz? Same as Dorothy, there's no place like home. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz with Joel Shaw here on listener-supported Community Radio, WOMR.